This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thanks for listening. Today, our unicorn builder is David Blake, CEO and co-founder of Degreed, a learning platform that's raised nearly $400 million in funding. David, thanks for chatting with me today. Yeah, thanks, Brett. I saw on LinkedIn that it's your personal mission to really transform the education system. Where did that passion come from and where did that mission come from? Yeah, I mean, I, I forget LinkedIn even has those like little bios. I mean, I probably wrote that little bio 15 years ago, but um, it just goes to show this has been a passion of mine for a really long time. I tell people I am an education reformer by choice. I am an entrepreneur out of necessity. And the passion bit me when I was 17 and I sat for the ACT and you know, that three and a half hours on a Saturday morning in a school gymnasium, rows of desks, just kind of looking around and just honestly kind of like flabbergasted that this is, you know, at some point all the grownups got together and this is how they decided to sort all of the 17 year olds in and out of their future. And I was like, you can't be serious. This isn't like for real how we, how we do this. But sure enough, it was. And that was like the little burr under my saddle that, uh, you know, started me pulling at the thread that would eventually turn from a curiosity into a passion into an obsession. In that same section on LinkedIn, you have, I think, a, a nine point plan there of what you do to transform <laughs> education. First one was, I think, drive the cost of learning to zero and a bunch of others from there. Could you just give us a high level overview? What is your vision for what education should look like? Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, the world's starting to uh, catch up to some of the vision and and it feels different talking about it now. But, you know, especially in America, we've had this kind of college as the de facto default pathway into kind of the good life. And we've been very credential obsessed. We've been very kind of college forward. And, you know, what I think the world looks like, it's not that uh, university is bad, but we built that system when the average lifespan was 38 or something, <laughs> you know, and knowledge was stable. And it just doesn't make sense anymore. Is this like, go learn, try and cram all the knowledge you're going to need into your early 20s and then apply it stably over the next, you know, five decades. What the future looks like is we are all empowered as lifelong learners. We learn every day, week, month, year. We learn from lots of experiences and different modalities, and that all of that learning is able to be captured and we can reflect it and get credit for everything we learn, irrespective of where or how you learned it, and that you can transact on that lifelong learning the same way that we have historically transacted on college degrees. And that is just a better world. It is a better future. It is a world where we aren't keeping a toll gate on the pathway to the happy life. It's a world where everyone, irrespective of kind of where they go or how they learn, is able to get credit for it. That's a, a more inclusive future. And we've just, we've got to get there. Will Stanford in its current state exist 50 years from now, do you think? Yeah, this is an interesting one. Yes, it will. I'm going to go on record definitively at will. And in large part because... The demand for education right now is essentially insatiable. 
The rate at which technology is scaling has outpaced the rate at which humanity can learn, which means the skill gap is getting bigger every day, week, month, year, which essentially the demand for education is bigger than all of the world's supply of education. So that means even if, you know, Stanford, you know, I've been on campus, wasn't ever a student, best I can tell, it's a phenomenal place of learning and education. But let's just say it was, you know, shitty and, and we're going to level a lot of critiques at it. Even if that were true, I still think it'll exist in 50 years because right now the education demand, the gap is so big, it's just consuming everything we can throw at it. Everything, everything, everything. So it's going to take everything we've got, every innovation, every new startup, every new model, all of the MOOCs, and still more. Like we have not yet invented enough education to meet the requirements that the world has. I think it's a perfect segue to talk a little bit more about Degreed and, and what you're doing there. So can we just start at a very high level, what the company does? I think everyone listening in, Degreed is one of those companies that I think everyone knows the name, but may not be familiar with what exactly it is you do and, and what the solution is. So let's start there. Yeah, I mean, it's um, just fun as an entrepreneur. It's cool. I mean, who knows to what degree that is true, but you saying, you know, everyone probably has heard it. Even that feels, uh, you know, it's just a fun little point as an entrepreneur to, to think that that might be true. Degreed was built to capture all of your learning so you could reflect it back. And so it captures all of your academic learning. You're able to input your formal college uh, courses and credits and degrees, but then also all of your professional learning. So everything you're doing on the job, whether that's in a LMS or on the job or, you know, LinkedIn learning or in a content library, as well as the third bucket is all of your personal learning. So all the stuff you're doing, not because a professor asked you to, not because your boss asked you to, just all the learning you're doing for yourself. So the articles, videos, book, podcasts, you know, events, courses, all of that, this podcast, people can add it to their degree profile. We aggregate up all of your learning and then we help translate it into your skills so that you can then transact on your skills as a reflection of, you know, all of your education and learning and knowledge. So almost like a digital bookshelf to showcase everything that you've learned. We were talking about there in the pre-interview, my bookshelf behind me. Is it, is it kind of like that, yeah. but a, a digital version? It does. I mean, I, as the founder, I've tracked my learning longer, you know, than anyone else on the platform, but we can go on there and you can see literally every book that I've read for the last 11 and a half years, all the courses I've taken, all the events I've been to, every article, you know, and there's something powerful about, you know, I mean, I'm like a little curation machine. If you want to see everything I've learned as I've gone on my journey of studying about the future of credentials or the future of skills, you know, you can just type that in and filter it down to everything I've learned about on that topic. And then our monetization, our business model is that we do this for corporates. And so 15 years ago, all of the corporate learning was really company focused, you know, sexual harassment training, FINRA training, food and, and health safety, it was regulation, compliance, it was training, it was everything the company needed you to know to do the job well. It was very company centric. The company is forcing you to learn this so that they can get value from you. And the greed really flipped that paradigm, which is in a world of where it's changing as fast as it is, we're going to have to enable everyone as a lifelong learner. And so helping companies empower people to learn, to see all of the learning that they're doing that's outside of the corporate systems. And so we became this layer that sat on top of the entire learning ecosystem that sits on top of all of the internal learning resources and becomes this unified place for all of the learning. And that gives then companies this window pane into what everyone knows, whatever on skills are, 
which is then very powerful data and information to be able to mobilize people, promote people, close skill gaps, that kind of thing. Can you take us back to 2012? Was this the initial idea or did it start off as something different? This is, you know, and I think Lean Startup was published in like 2010 or 11 or something. It was just kind of like right in the lead up to when I started to greed and that's when essentially Pivot came into the zeitgeist. And we launched first with consumers and then we launched an enterprise and everyone would be like, oh, congrats on the Pivot. But it's a rare case where we had a strong sense of what the puzzle pieces were going to be. And even though others didn't maybe see the the whole picture of what we were trying to put together, you know, if you go back and watch my Techstars demo day, this has really been the vision from the very beginning. So we launched first with consumers because we wanted the data to be lifelong. It's going to truly be lifelong learning. You've got to own your data. You've got to own your profile. And then we launched into enterprise, but we did so preserving the right for every degree end user to own their data so that even when you leave your employer, you don't lose all of that history of your learning and your skills. You're able to take it forward with you into your next job. At what point did it start to feel like there was something really here? Was it that feeling right away? Did it take a few years? What were those early days like? We have as sharp of a hockey stick kind of like moments as anyone honestly might. It was kind of uh, three years to then kind of break out and become, you know, kind of this like overnight success. Because we launched with consumers, we weren't monetizing. So year one was kind of building the prototype, building the team. Year two, we had launched with consumers. It was growing with consumers, but we weren't monetizing. Year three, we started building our enterprise offering, you know, and was able to kind of bring it to market right at the end of the third year, you know, and it was hard to fundraise for. I mean, if you go back in 2012, I don't know how much kind of your headspace was, uh, had any exposure to, you know, kind of the ed tech space in 2012, but 2011 was the year of the MOOC. That was Coursera, Udacity, edX. It's when lynda.com and Pluralsight kind of had their hockey sticks. It's when Udemy had kind of its emergence. And so everyone was working on democratizing education. They were working on the content. And then here I was over in kind of like, you know, the corner, a, a young pointy stuff then talking about the future of skills and the future of credentials. And people were curious, but, you know, the market wasn't really wet ready. VCs weren't quite willing to make the bet on me, on the idea, on that future. So it was really hard. We just, lots of tough moments in there, scraped by, ran out of money plenty of times. But so year one, two, three, we are pre-revenue. We finally bring our enterprise offering to market. Our first client is like a 10K. It was Lithia Motors. It's a like a car dealership network. Our second client was like 15K. And then our, our third client was a $5.7 million contract with a Fortune 20 organization. So it really did have this kind of like zero to millions kind of overnight, this, this inflection point. You mentioned tough moments there in those early days. Can you give us like the, the toughest, what was the most brutal moment that you went through? I'll tell you one. I will tell you one of them. So it was really early on. It was like kind of right at the start of the journey. I had quit my job. So I was, you know, I'd kind of jumped in. I felt a heavy weight. I was married with two young kids. My wife, because we had just had our kids, wasn't working in that moment. So we didn't have like a, a second income. We were mid 20 somethings. We hadn't, you know, been able to save a lot. We were working at a, uh, I was at a startup. We we're living in, in San Francisco. It's expensive enough. So, I mean, I was all in, I was committed. I was, you know, had quit my job and, and kind of the clock was ticking. And it was the first experience that I had in like a pitch competition. 
And so it was actually at Stanford. And um, there was three judges. One was one of the few ed tech entrepreneurs or founders in that moment. Ed tech really wasn't kind of yet a proper category in that moment. So one of the few founders, one of the, a very notable kind of super angel, I guess is the best way of um, saying it. And then a more traditional VP. So those are the three judges. I'm at this pitch competition. I get up, you know, and I pitched agreed. And they were super harsh, super critical, you know, don't get it. You know, the college degree is going to reign supreme, you know, betting against college, foolhardy. And it was pretty harsh. And so, I mean, I, I was pretty deflated. It was on this stage that was just like open in a large room. So this wasn't like a stage where you could walk off the side and kind of off, you know, stage left and no one could see you. So, you know, dejected, having just been, you know, shot down by kind of these preeminent voices. Like I'm, I'm walking off the steps of the stage kind of, you know, head hung low, feeling pretty dejected. And from, we're like in this just large room. It had just been set up in the center of this large room. And a guy got up from the middle of one of the rows, kind of, you know, getting past everyone's knees is a little bit of a distraction. Everyone, you know, is kind of now eyes on him. He's making noise as he was kind of shuffling past. And it was a stranger. I had never met this guy. He sort of walked briskly up the center aisle to meet me as I'm walking off of this stage. And so we're now in front of everyone. We're just kind of to the left of the judges in front of everyone. The next person hasn't yet come up on stage. So everyone's just kind of like looking. And he comes up and part of my French, but I will quote him. He said, don't listen to those fuckers. <laughs> he said, what you are doing is important and the world needs it. And so one, you know, just extended in a tough moment really can just be one of the kind of life-changing things. And I really believe there's a very good chance that I would have like pivoted off of my idea or away from it, or just felt like, you know, if these three people, you know, can't see it, what chance do I have? And DeGreed could have lived or died in that moment. And I really am very grateful. I went to lunch with this guy, his name's Raphael, won't uh, um, kind of ever forget because it was such a pivotal thing. And if you go back, sorry, this has gone maybe a little bit too long, but that was a moment in Silicon Valley where the culture was still, you know, I'm crushing it. There was no acceptance of being more vulnerable or open or sharing the challenges of the journey. And so, you know, it was kind of the always crushing it moment where you just always had the best foot forward and I think over time, sort of the mental health narrative changed and people got a little bit more willing to share some of their struggles um, kind of openly. But, it, you know, very few people had really shared their struggles. We went to lunch. He told me about his startup journey. And at some point, you know, he said he was crying under his desk. And I always held on to that because when my really shitty moments came, I was like, man, if he could, you know, be crawled up in a ball, you know, crying under his desk, have it be that hard but still make it, you know, like I'll be able to get through my hard moments too. So anyways, really grateful for other vulnerability, other, other founders sharing their hard moments and, you know, it made a real difference to me. Have you ever been in touch with those three judges? I have, I actually was at a conference this March and bumped into one of them. And I told him the story, told him, you know, recounted it for him and had kind of a good chuckle, you know, so I don't hold it against them. <laughs> did he remember the, no. did he remember it or probably just uh, one of many things? He did. He did. No, actually I, uh, he did. he did. Yeah. But yeah, we had a good chuckle. I mean, there's not a VC in Silicon Valley that hasn't turned me down at least once. So 
you know, I don't, I don't hold it against anyone. What drives you and what, what fuels you? Where does this like confidence and, and belief in yourself come from? Yeah. I mean, I consider it a great gift is just kind of like stumbled into my passion early in my life and feel so sort of sure in it. I think there's lots of, you know, pathways to impact and kind of lead a meaningful, you know, kind of um, life and career. But I just feel really grateful that I stumbled into it. It really does go back to the ACT. Sitting behind that story was a bit of this epiphany. I graduated top of my high school class and realized in this moment that like I was an excellent student. Well, holy shit, I'm actually a really bad learner. Like once I realized that the school system had essentially just turned me into a really good test taker and memorizer, but that I genuinely had a really, I didn't care. I didn't have any curiosity. Knowledge wasn't the point, you know, learning wasn't the point. It was just a, it was a game, you know, the grades were the point, taking the test was the point. And once I sort of like sorted that out, my commitment to myself was, I want to be a great learner, even if it comes at the expense of being a great student. And I've just held on really tight to that. And so really grateful for good people in my life, really grateful to kind of have found my passion and it always made the hard moments, you know, I had something that uh, felt like it was worth it. What were your views early on when it comes to your market category? Did you have clarity on what that category was going to be or did that category not even exist yet? Yeah, this is kind of a funny one. So the industry analysts have deemed what we created the LXP, Learning Experience Platform. So we are one of the kind of businesses that created and lead a category. And yeah, I have a very like mixed just kind of emotional reaction to this, which is, you know, at some level, if you don't define yourself, others will define you for you. And that's a little bit of what happened, but um, I never really liked that we had this category kind of named after us in many ways because others started to define what this category was and what the category needed and therefore what they understood us to be and who they thought we should be. Where I really love the Walt Disney story you know, just going from Lucky the Rabbit to Mickey Mouse to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs to Fantasia to color to audio to television to the parks. And it's so many moments in the Walt Disney story. There's so many of those transition points where they almost died. And it was always kind of this like, we have to, you know, leap from this lily pad to the next. We have to keep moving forward. And I always saw what we were doing as something of of kind of this like multi-step march where, you know, we need to start with the consumer and then we need to go into enterprise and then we need to have, you know, a way of measuring and transacting on skills. And then we need a way for that to, you know, be used in career mobility and hiring. And part of what happened is when people said, oh, degreed, you are an LXP. It's like they caught us on our third lily pad and said, that's who you are. So you know, mixed reactions. They named it uh, for us. I believe Degreed is, you know, much bigger than just a learning experience platform, but um, pros and cons. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now back to today's episode. Can you share any numbers so we can just understand the scale that you're operating at today? In the intro there, I mentioned 400 million raised or roughly 400 million raised in funding. What else can we talk about just to demonstrate how big this 
organization really is? Yeah, so we're 500-ish people globally, our client base. We're one of the rare SaaS companies that started in the Fortune 20 and enterprise-wide top-down globally instead of kind of a land and expand motion. So our clients tend to be some of the world's largest organizations. We're now on, it's like 30% of the Fortune 100 and like 40% of the kind of next 50 after that. And then we've got like 5% of the top 2,000 companies in the world. So, you know, even kind of those three data points were highly concentrated in the world's largest companies. So we've got about 400, we're just short of 400 enterprise clients. We're coming up on our 10 million licenses, you know, and that translates into right now about uh, two, two and a half million kind of monthly users on the platform. What do you think you've gotten right? I'm sure founders listening in would love to be here on a podcast five years from today and you know, share those types of numbers and, and talk about this type of success. What have you gotten right? I think it only came with hindsight that I appreciate what a gift it was to have such a clear sense of mission and vision and North Star from day one. And not only was it there, but I did the work of sitting down and capturing it, writing it, drawing it, turning it into, you know, eventually into kind of our story and into slides and into pitch deck. But I still, to this day, 11 and a half years later, we still use some of those. I have this hand-drawn mission, vision, principles document that I did on an iPad mini on an airplane ride, you know, in the earliest days of Degreed. And that's still how I onboard people to the company. I just think it's been a gift that has had so many dividends for the company and just kind of keeps on giving. And it's served us really well. And I think I, I got that right. What's your superpower? Um, yeah, I actually got uh, asked this question this week and uh, was kind of challenging myself to maybe uh, think of it a, uh, another one. The one I answered then was wherever you are, be there. Just the ability to be very present and in, in the task at hand and in the place I'm in. I think one of the things that uh, really was part of the prerequisite for my journey was I was fueled deeply by mission with a ability to sort of not let money influence my thinking or how I was feeling about the journey. You know, I think if it wasn't so kind of mission driven, I wouldn't have actually held on as tight as I needed to, as long as I had to, because, you know, hell, you know, there's easier ways to make a buck. And so I think it was a prerequisite to kind of pulling this off. When you were first starting the company, did you have any idea that it would become a unicorn at some point? Like in the back of your mind, were you even thinking about that at all? Or did you really just execute on the mission and, and everything else came from there? You know, I mean, even going back to what I just said, I mean, I never framed it that way, but I would say absolutely. I believe from the beginning we said it, you know, at minimum will be a great enterprise SaaS company and at best will be one of the greats. And our ambition, if achieved, always felt big enough to be as big and as important as anything out there. So it, it did give me kind of, you know, visions of grandeur and a sense that this has just ultimate potential. Because I really do believe that the problem we're solving is just a fundamental shift in, I mean, ultimately not to be too grandiose, but I mean, just how we think about education. And education is one of the great affinities of our lives. You know, it's it's God, country, family, sports, education. Like there aren't that many things that people have ever been kind of willing to 
you know, truly sacrifice for besides kind of the great affinities and, and education is one of them. Do you remember the day that it crossed that threshold that you were going to be a billion dollar plus company? I mean, our series D financing is what kind of technically gave us the tick mark. And um, I actually was not, I had stepped down. I was a CEO, I was executive uh, chair in that moment in time, but, you know, I was doing something different. And so in many ways, I just remember feeling, you know, it's almost like a, a parental pride to just kind of like see your child growing up and and finding their place, finding themselves, finding their their way in the world. And, you know, knowing that, of course, as a parent, you had a, a role in that, but just like they're their own person and really just proud of who they are. Like, that's kind of how I felt about Degreed in that moment is just I'd been able to build something that had grown past me that still had a sense of who it was and and what it needed to be in the world and was growing. And, and you know, it was just kind of a, a really cool moment to see that this thing I had created, you know, just kind of grow up. I see you stepped down from the CEO role in 2018. And of course, you, you stepped back into it in, in June 2022. What was that like stepping down? Was that hard to do? It, of course, was. I mean, Degreed has been this obsession. It's been my passion. It's, you know, so much kind of sacrifice was laid on the altar to to see it kind of come about in the world. And, you know, and and so in so many ways, it's just been the goal and dream and ambition of my life. And I, I didn't had no sense that I ever would do anything but it. But what I, I actually stepped down to do political organizing. And there's just kind of very few things in this world that I believe you know, ultimately I care more and more about than education that I think could be more sort of pressing than education and where I maybe felt uh, I had any leverage. But, you know, in 2017, 2018, that was a big shift in kind of the tone of American democracy. You can go back to maybe 2012, 2014. I mean, I think, you know, Tea Party and um, Obama started to be a pretty divisive kind of rift. But I do believe that democracy is one of those things that's ultimately more important still. And seeing sort of our framing democracy, I felt deeply motivated to try and do my part to be part of the solution. And so I actually stepped down to do political organizing, um, clipboard in hand all across America for two years. And so that's what, uh, you know, there's very little that I could ever imagine would have, uh, you know, what else might've gotten me to step down, but that sense of calling did. And then you came back June, 2022. So what, what's the story there? What, what part of the story can we talk about? Yeah. I mean, I genuinely thought, you know, you, that's a one way door. You don't get to like walk through that door and then hand off the baton and then just like ask for it back. I mean, I, I really stepped down believing it was a one way door. I didn't ever have any expectation of being the CEO again. And true enough, when I got done with my efforts in the political organizing, I started a venture studio called the future of works. We launched two operating companies. One was LearnIn. The second was BookClub.com. And, you know, so, I mean, I was on to the next chapter of my career, of course, still on the board at Degreed and, and exceptionally proud of what um, Degreed was doing. You know, but uh, the CEO who succeeded me, he had to step down to do medical reasons to do surgery and did a really great job with the business. And then the, the company actually looked and hired an outside CEO to kind of be our IPO CEO. And of course, the world changed. It changed pretty dramatically. Sort of all of a sudden, IPO wasn't going to be what uh, you know the company needed to to drive against or optimize for. And you know, then there was a lot of just shift and change in our industry. And and the CEO had come from outside of our industry. And I think you know to navigate that moment in time, the board just felt like it needed its founder back. And so 
the board actually approached me in my capacity at Learn In and and uh, to acquire, see the interest in acquiring that business and putting them together and bringing me back as the CEO of the combined entity. And that was a cool thought. I mean, I love Learn In. The team was rocking and rolling, doing good things. And I love Degreed. And so, you know, the chance to kind of put those businesses together and have once again, a global kind of platform with which to affect the change that I hope to see in the world of lifelong learning. Couldn't pass that up. So here I am. What were the top priorities as you came back in as CEO? Was it just wartime mode or like what was going on at that time? Yeah. I mean, it's um, the second week on the job. I was in London twice a year. We gather all our largest clients and we call it our client advisory board. And so was meeting with our largest clients, which, you know, reflected, I don't know, some 20% of our revenue. So was meeting with them. And in that same week had to do a layoff inside the the company. You know, the world had changed quickly. Degreed had kind of put itself on this growth at sort of any cost trajectory as, as many were. And, you know, the math kind of penciled once upon a time and all of a sudden the, the rule book changed and the goalpost moved. And, you know, and we were one of the companies that was kind of very much had to quickly shift our ways of operating. And so when I stepped back, I think it was about 8% of the company of the employees had a tenure where I had overlapped with them. You know, most of the growth, had, you know, or the, the company had kept growing. So a lot of people had gotten hired in the subsequent years who, you know, I had never worked with. And so it was, yeah, just kind of this like weird thing, you know, it's my company, I founded it, but in many ways it was no longer my company and, and no one knew who I was. And so it's kind of like being a stranger in your own house and, uh, you know, immediately had to step in and, and yeah, quite quickly go into war mode. And, you know, there was a lot about it that was kind of very just emotionally challenging to, to step back into. What was the most challenging part of this kind of later chapter? I know we talked about some of those challenges early on. If we look at, you know, maybe the last three years, what was the most difficult thing that you've had to navigate? I feel like I've got really tight answers on most of your questions because, you know, I've had enough hindsight to kind of look back and and frame what things meant to me, you know, and in many ways, you know, here we are. I mean, I've only been back for, I think, 14 months, 15 months, maybe now. So in many ways, still just in it. You know, this last year and a half, it's been a lot of shifts inside the company. One, we were digesting an acquisition, learning, got acquired by Degreed, and so sort of integrating those platforms. Degreed was shifting from a single product SaaS company to a multi-product SaaS company. Degreed had, in many ways, kind of left the consumer vision and ambition of lifelong learning kind of on the roadside as I had stepped away. So, you know, really picked that back up, making sure that Degreed was positioned to be this kind of portable skill profile in the market. So, you know, we're, we're picking back up sort of our consumer profile, which has always been there, but was, was maybe a little neglected, you know, having to reshift the profile of the business from being optimized for growth to being optimized for profitability, all of that while, you know, doing it with as many are sort of having to do more with less on the heels of a riff. We, we quite literally had fewer people. So it's been a year of, you know, there's a lot of shifting the business like that it kind of leaves pressure in the system. And the last, actually, I'd say just like two months have been just so amazing and so fun where I feel like, you know, really starting to see sort of the slingshot, you know, back uh, out of kind of all of those decisions we've made, the, you know, work that we've had to put back in, the the shifts and the changes, and they're all starting to add up to some really incredible momentum. 
Based on everything that you've learned so far throughout this journey, what would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to yourself if you were starting over from scratch? I think I've never really heard others reference this, but as I look back on it, I think it informs a lot of the early journey, product market fit, which is knowing how to interpret pain. So doing a startup inevitably is hard. You are inevitably going to feel, you know, pain and being good at discerning that, you know, knowing I'm feeling pain. Is that a signal that means I don't have product market fit, that this isn't the right offering that I need to shift, I need to adjust? Or is this pain just because like startups are hard, you know, it's a tough market and, you know, I need to just hold on tight and believe and and get through. You know, I think having that framework and being able to kind of name for yourself, which type of moment you think it is, I think could be helpful. What are your categories of pain? Do you have like a spectrum of pain or like different categories? How do you think about pain? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to have conviction in what you believe the future is going to look like. And that's, I guess, maybe the difference or how I sort of sort it out. You know, so along the way, I did face plenty of rejection, you know, um, from VCs, from the markets, frictions. But if I'm pitching VC, not feeling it, you know, negative feedback, does that mean I'm wrong? Does that mean they're not seeing it? If their feedback was congruous with my vision of the future, but then critical of of part of the business or how I was telling it, I took that as, you know, I need to adjust. If the feedback was not sort of congruous with my vision of the future, you know, I ignored those people. And I think especially with the market, it's a little bit different if it's like a sales, if it's a prospect, you know, I think you need to share your vision of the future and then listen very closely to the feedback you get from the market. Because I think being iterative and agile to that feedback is a gift. And that is a large part of how you navigate product market fit. But I think done well, you know, you find the people who do share your vision of the future and then do give you critical feedback of your product. And ultimately those are the most valuable types of early clients because they're taking the risk with you. They believe as you believe, you know, but are helping sort of hone and sharpen, you know, your tool. And so, you know, I have early partners like that, that I, I kind of owe everything to. Final question. I know we're over on time here. What's the big picture vision here? What's the next three to five years going to look like? We are entering a skills-based economy. The rate at which technology scales is now outpaced the rate at which humans can learn. That is means the skill gap is getting bigger every day, week, month, year. That's putting immense pressure into individual careers, teams, companies, and even countries. And people are starting to shift and mobilize to getting really efficient around what skills do people have and what skills do they need. And this is essentially an evolution from right now the economy is organized by job, job title, job function, and we're shifting to a, an economy that will be organized by skills. And it's a better, more efficient economy because, you know, right now, big company, our clients are big. So there might literally be a job title that has 13,000 people in it inside one of our clients, you know, 30,000 people, 35,000 people. And of course, all 30,000 of those people are going, they're unique humans. They've got a different mix of skill, but sort of that job title, you know, organizing principle treats them largely uniformly. And if you can get to the level of what skills does everyone have, what mix of skills, it's a model that's much more efficient. So, you know, right now, none of us log into Gusto, into, you know, ADP and state 
how much we're willing to pay for what skills and that flows through payroll. And the next, my guess is three years from now, probably most companies will. They will log into their payroll system and they will dictate how much they're willing to pay for each skill. We will get paid based on our skill. We will get promoted based on our skill. We will be able to learn and close our skills gaps because that map will be known and clear. That world is coming and it's coming pretty fast. I think this is kind of, you know, you said three to five years. I think this will start seeing the world turn this way. Certainly next year and the next 18 months, I think three years you'll be getting paid based on what skills you have. And I think, you know, five years from now, you know, job titles will be largely falling out of vogue. Wow. Amazing. All right, David, we'll have to wrap here. I have another like 50 questions I want to ask you, but we'll have to save that, I think, for part two. Before we wrap up, if there's founders listening in that just want to follow along with your company building journey and just you know follow along with you in general, where should they go? Yeah, X is um, at David Blake. Instagram is at David Blake. LinkedIn is IN backslash David Blake. Pretty nice easy to find. Yep. David, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Brad. It's fun. <laughs>